Welcome back to Mark's Madness Collaboration. Oh, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Collaboration time once more. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> that voice you just heard? Collaboration. Collaboration, gang. Uh, that being said, not to belabor it too much, but we are Mark's Madness Pod, and we read books. Uh, my name is Nathan. My name's David. And we are joined on this collaboration by... Shungmani to or Zikato, whatever you want to call it. Yes, me. yes, yes. Um, we are going to be continuing our reading of The Red Deal by the Red Nation. Uh, we're going to be starting that in just a minute or two, but as we are wont to do uh, at the start of episodes, we are going to do uh, a little bit of current events. Uh, and for that, I will kick it over to David. Yeah, um, so one thing I wanted to touch on that I meant to get to on the last episode and forgot to, um, and, you know, kind of on the tragic side of things, obviously, uh, the healthcare in the United States prison system is severely lacking and grotesque, and one way that's highlighted is among the many political prisoners kept there. Um, Kevin Rasheed Johnson, we've talked about, uh, at least on the Mark's Madness side of the, the show, um, I don't know if he's been talked about on, on the Red Nation, but from the Mark's Madness side, we talked about him before, uh, he is the uh, Minister of Defense for what is now the Revolutionary Intercommunal Black Panther Party. Uh, it was formerly the New African Black Panther Party, underwent some changes. Um, and, you know, of course, that includes being Minister of Defense under the umbrella of the Panther Solidarity Organization, used to be the United Panther Movement. Well, um, he has been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and obviously that was a delayed diagnosis because the U.S. prison system is horrendous, and that is pretty well i mean the treatment in the the prison is not good the, he's not going to get the proper care so uh it's important for all of us um any effort you see going towards him and, and you can go to rashidmod.com um, read his writings and see what whatever he's asking for uh at any time but whatever your org can do uh, to back him whether someone you know calls a phone zap insisting on him getting proper medical care or whatever you can do just make sure you keep that in your mind and offer your solidarity um, to a revolutionary like Kevin Rashid Johnson. Um, and again, for updates and the rest of, of Rashid's writings, you can hit uh, RashidMod.com. Absolutely. And Shukmani, too, anything on your side before we get into the reading this week? Um, well, I don't remember what I said in the last recording. I don't know what you're talking about. That recording doesn't exist. What? 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 <laughs> what? Um... No, I mean, not really. I mean, I, I of course, I still need money. Uh, we're struggling pretty hard. Hard to get a job right now. There's some uh, legal issues preventing us from getting hired, really, but that's the way she goes here in capitalism's penal system. Yep. Um, no. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that being the case, let us jump right into the reading this week. We are jumping in on page five under the subheading Resistance. The pandemic all but erased how the Wet'suwet'en nation stood up to Canada and Coastal Gas Link Pipeline in early January 2020, kicking off a year of intense, intense resistance. In February, the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, removed Wet'suwet'en and Gixan matriarchs from the Unistoten camp by force. Oh, man, I'm going to butcher. I'm going to butcher and it's going to be bad. Police raided a healing center, reconnecting indigenous people to the land to help re reverse the psychological and spiritual effects of ongoing genocide. 
Armed men forced their way through rows of red dresses set up by land defenders to honor the indigenous women and girls who have gone missing or been, have been murdered on Canada's infamous Highway 16, known as the Highway of Tears, in so-called British Columbia. The cops ignored the dresses, just like they have ignored the ongoing genocide against women and girls. What mattered to them was their historic duty to clear indigenous people from their land and make way for business. The Unitsoten right, camp... Unistoten, thank you, thank you, camp. What? Oh, so you hung me out to dry gonna, the first I'm gonna, time. I'm going to save you now. I'm going to okay, throw you Okay, all right. I, I, needed, I needed a certain number of mispronunciations before it became too much. You were a little yeah, too yeah. far down the hole. You, you needed to I, I, I desperately needed someone to bail me out. Oh, God. Uh, camp, whose motto was heal the people, heal the land, stood in the way of the, ex- of the extractive economic giant that is Canada, a nation with a very public... Uh, I'm going to add Please. right here, though, um, just for a citation. Um, Canada owns about 75% of extractive industries across the world, according to Spring Magazine. Holy cow. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That, yeah. I'm not that absolutely tracks. What was, D- David, what were, where, it wasn't blood of my, it was right, it was neocolonialism. Wasn't Nkrumah getting heavily into Cana- Canadian yeah. extractive resources and all <sighs> I need yes. to catch up on that all of that stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was he was bringing up Canada quite a bit in in his analysis. Yeah, the the biggest thing there were there were German, there were um, French, and there were Canadian were were the ones heavily, especially French and Canadian, um, invested in extraction in Africa. Yeah. There it is. Uh, stood in the way of the extractive economic giant that is Canada, a nation with a very public process to reconcile with First Nations, Inuit, and Mestiz people. The Wet'suwet'en matriarchs boldly declared that reconciliation is dead and called for a shutdown of the Canadian economy. Reconciliation is meaningless in a system where profits hold more sanctity than indigenous life. That, there's a one sentence so for you. I think that, oh yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I had written down in my notes that you know, COVID nineteen has set the the U.S. left and the Canadian left back um, so far that now you know history is beginning to rhyme with you know the you know fish in struggles mm-hmm. uh, like when you look at line three and how the rivers are drying up. There's this beautiful documentary called "As Long as the River Flows" that covers the fish in struggles. That's free on YouTube. Everybody should check it out. Honestly, um, and it it just. You know, you see this documentary from, like, I want to say, like, the early 2000s, and then you look at how things have progressed 20 years. It's terrifying, you know? We're dying on our own land, but settler leftists have the audacity to say that fascism is only here now, you know? And it's like, Roe v. Wade being overturned is just the, you know, tip of the iceberg of fascism becoming an open display that, um is reacting to the years of so-called liberal progress because what has it done besides police people's language? I mean, I'm not one to say that we shouldn't, you know, change the lexicon, but I do think, you know, that there's a reason why people are having a backlash against the liberal ideas of change, and that's if people all have the same idea, you know, the correct ideas... The common sense will prevail, right? The Lockean sense of common sense, um, but it was it was the the approach of change everything except what what undercuts our bottom line pretty well. That's well, how exactly. liberal handles it. You, yeah. you can't change the superstructure. You know that is the bottom line in any society, really. Yep. You know, 
So, well, you know, it, you know, the superstructure wants to maintain. Yeah, it, it strives just, for equilibrium. It wants status quo. And so, to us, this is just like a long tradition, you know, in the ethos of fascism, which is settler colonialism. Uh, to us, if you read, uh, oh, I should have grabbed the quote, really, um, but. Um, Red Nation Rising, you know, we make the argument that fascism is simply settler colonialism being applied to um, the settler homeland. Yeah. Um, so they're colonized themselves, essentially. Um, but with the uh, chant, heal the people, heal the land, um, it, it offers that dialectic position between Canadian and uh, U.S. indigenous people, as well as leftists, that... Uh, in DAPL, we had um, Mini Wachoni, which is uh, water is life in my language. And um, Mini um, sort of denotes uh, living essence. And so in our in our culture, we have what's called Beishkanshka, which means that which moves. So in our understanding, everything has a spirit, you know, even the rocks. The rocks we call rock people, even. Um, you know, there's more to that tradition that I don't think I'm you know, allowed to speak on here, and I don't recommend people go look it up themselves. I recommend, unless you know a medicine man or some really traditional person, don't go studying, you know, mythological mythological ideas of indigenous people on Wikipedia, because you end up sounding really freaking stupid. I'm just going to let you know that now. Um, <laughs> this has been our Tips but for now, White People. Uh, recurring, a recurring <laughs> segment throughout this uh, collaboration. Don't, don't be the douchebag exactly. that's that's burning sage when you're a white dude. All right, just don't do that. Well, well, you know, there's like so. If you want to burn sage to like cleanse your house, just go burn cedar. That's an open practice. You're allowed to go collect it. We openly encourage white people to do it. Okay, sage on the other hand is being over harvested. I just got advertised today. Um, uh, like an Amazon bulk bundle of oh, white no. sage. We are two steps away from going down to the Costco to get a to get a, a bundle size of sage, and it it's oh, it's like oh man, uh, oh, I'm getting Sundance together. Where am I going to get my sage? Oh yeah, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, real traditional. You know, I thought duct tape was bad. You know? <laughs> but um, my entire point though is like now. Um, because of COVID-19 and how people weren't engaging in active struggle because of the dangers it presented, right? Um, which I think we really need to... You know, it, right, it's, it's a very fine line, right? Mm -hmm. To, you know, what is an acceptable response to COVID and then what's a liberal response, you know? You know, like, what, what, what would actually solve the problem versus what... Um, we think according to the common sense of our society, which is like, oh, everybody get a vaccine, yada, 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 which is fine and all. I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. I support it. You know, anybody in my tribe, I recommend it. You get a free thousand dollars. It's worth it. I don't know. You know, but the problem is, is um, the Democrats. One thing I'll say about um, Trump's uh, Operation Warp Speed is that. Uh, we should have pushed them out as quickly as possible and reserved a second shot for the people we already shot with the shot. Instead, we held on to a bunch 
and then they expired, and then they just gave them to native tribes, which historically has led to the sterilization and harm of our communities. So that's where a lot of this anti-vaccination sentiment comes from. And so in Canada, um, it has become illegal to blockade key infrastructures, uh, and a lot of that is due to the awesome trucker convoy. Oh my God! Those those so patriotic, great. possibly proletarian <laughs> truckers. I I that was a confusing the- one. For Twitter, Twitter had a hard time with that. Definitely not Astro Definitely not Astro It wasn't that hard. It's not even that hard to figure no. out. You just have to know some basic understandings of the oh. industries. Okay, so the biggest thing they were complaining about is the rise in part prices, right? As well as gas prices, but parts have ex- exponentially increased. Um, what people don't realize is that eighty-five percent of U.S. and Canadian car parts are shipped over the Ambassador Bridge by car- truck. Because Detroit's right there, and they just ship them into Windsor. It's a great, you know, uh, people call Windsor a suburb of Detroit, you know. It's it's practically part of our economy. You know what I mean? Here in Michigan. Uh, same with, like, the lumber industry. And so the, the people just don't understand this. And so, um, you know, the astroturfed, you know, protest that was funded by, like, the Koch brothers um, co-ops leftist rhetoric um, due to our successes fighting for land back and decolonization, and so they actually paraded around some tokenized individuals who, I mean, probably were like Métis or something like that, but like, uh, you know, it it capitalizes on, you know, the history of sterilization in a way that um, leftists aren't willing to address out of fears of being called COVID deniers, when it's just like, no, there's a reason not to trust a vaccine that purely profits Bill Gates. You know what I mean? Like, there, there is a reason not to. And as much as it's, you know, a miracle and stuff like that, um, if we had universal health care, it would have been a cheaper alternative. Yeah, prove You know it. what I mean? Well, it's also, it's also you can even expand on that, too, with the materialist case. For the people that are concerned about it, and there's people outside of the indigenous communities who have the righteous, uh, you know, reason to worry from the expired vaccines. If other people are just like, well, this, you know, this this profits corporations be like, OK, well, let's dig in a little more on how it profits corporations. And they were obviously profiting by protecting intellectual property, um, which was going to allow it to fester, allow more variants to come out, which tells you that it was effective, but it was never going to be a worldwide thing. It was never going to be doled out for caring about people. It was going to be corporations take company, take um, um, government money because they're they're solving this this great societal problem. So they basically get to do the research for free, and then they keep all the profits themselves, and then they protect their intellectual property so that no one can undermine it to save more lives. Um, and when you don't have that material understanding, you can't explain that to people, and so you get in this binary of like, well, you know, either vaccines are a magical fix, not something that replaces masking or that would ever, you know, win over everything if you don't go through the world, or you know, you're you're a full on denier because it's corporate, and you can't you can't look that surface level. You have to dig deeper. And so then I ask people, you know, with a failed protest like this, like this, useless. It, it only exasperated the problem. Yeah. Correct. Right. You know, like, um, as we read on, why why would this be an astroturfed project that the right wing wants to fund? You know, because this takes place after the next paragraph, so I guess we should continue. Um, should I? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, if you want to read, go ahead. You go ahead, yeah. All right. In- indigenous peoples blockaded key railways across the country under the banner, Reconciliation is Dead. 
Nearly half a billion dollars worth of goods sat idle for several weeks in February, disrupting supply chains for weeks, slowly bleeding the Canadian economy. It was the only language that settler state understood, money. Direct action focused on strategic choke points and coordinated with a mass mobilization of solidarity rallies which forced the Canadian government to negotiate with indigenous land defenders on terms it normally uh, wouldn't consider. But more importantly, the indigenous land defenders' demands became more focused. It wasn't just about reconciliation or stopping a pipeline. People get confused what we want as native people. Denzel Sutherland Wilson of the um, Gidesan Nation said, referring to the eviction of the coastal gasoline pipeline. We can't company. bail you out on no, that I was one. About to say. You, you, <laughs> you're Of <laughs> uh, the coastal gasoline pipeline company from the lands of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. It's like, what do you want? Just land back. Um, right now, the Communist Party of Canada um, is engaged in a cover-up. Uh, to maintain authority over those whose land they occupy and destroy through inaction. But worse, ignorance. It is common to see settler leftists act on the behalf of the CIA and the State Departments uh, of their respective nations as unpaid vigilantes when they refute, quote-unquote, land back as, quote-unquote, simply a transfer of land to a new landlord class. This is the progressive version of the reverse annihilation theory that permeates white supremacy, but settler society as a whole. As we represent the project, uh, uh, the society that represents uh, the uh, the project's contradictions and mythology, you know, uh, this is like... The common argument I always hear is, oh, if we give land back to indigenous people, they'll just become the new bourgeoisie. You know, and all you're doing is redescribing what settlers did to us and assuming we'll do the same. The problem with that is <clears throat> you have to have a real determinist and um, developmentalist idea of what history is, you know, like a stagist, I should say. And, and that's like, you know, that's the common orthodox Marxist position is that, you know, uh, history happens in stages and it's only the most developed capitalist state that will um, spark revolution um, when <laughs> demonstrably through scientific socialism that's just yeah. false you know like we, we yeah, saw it, Russia we've seen Marxist revolutions go completely different directions you know and, and Marx again brilliant foundational theory that we've used to jump off of for hundreds of years and that's why it's it's useful right for, for a couple hundred years that's why it's useful but it's not he didn't see a revolution. You know, the farthest he saw was the Paris Commune. He didn't see these revolutions in action. It's scientific socialism, and he well, didn't I have would... the scientific input. I disagree. Well, okay. as far as socialist, sure, he only saw one. Okay, socialist he was he was in Europe, and and he was just right. and even in in, in his uh, remember his uh, historical materialism that we're talking about here, who's describing specifically Europe, he even called Russia specifically as a different development process, and saying well, the stuff didn't apply there. The problem is, it's not a different development process. The problem is, is he had a very, um, you know, ethno ethnographical, like, uh, academic perspective on how societies operated. Yeah. And so, like, talk, I, I've been talking with some, you know, professors and stuff, and um, one's a white dude. He's 
cool dude. Means the best. But you can hear in, like, their conversations about the class societies here in um, America beforehand. And, like, obviously there's, like, a noble savage myth that you can fall into. But there, there's fundamentally a different class relationship that people are operating in after um, the fall of the Aztecs, especially. But, well, like, you know, Nahuatl, like, dominance, like, the cult, the Nahuatl cultural elements sort of dominated um, pretty far into North America, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. Um, you know, and so, like, uh, there's an argument to be made that, you know, there is, like, a priest class, so to say, in a lot of indigenous cultures, but our understandings of them is a lot different than, like, um, your classic Catholics, so, like, there's this, you know, tributary relationship, right, where you, you, you give offering, so to say, but, you know, settlers will display this as, like, well, his words were exotic regalia and um, ceremonial tools that are supposedly um, withheld from people uh, due to class relations. And it's like, well, that only really works assuming, right, that there isn't a bountiful supply of, you know, these materials, for one. Uh, and that's true in this day and age. However... Applying this day and age's materialism to a pre-colonial society is a little different, you know what I mean? And um, especially, like, you know, you throw in the Dewaddle contradictions there, you, you have a lot to reanalyze, especially challenging your own Orientalism. I don't think enough people challenge their Orientalism um, in their own theories. So when you have a theory of, like, I think this is how it happens... I would ask you to please, please, please ask yourself, how could this be racist? And if you can't figure it out, by golly, message me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can tell you. You know, there's almost always, like, a short-sightedness in people's analysis regarding the indigenous question. You know, uh, a lot of white people call it the Indian problem, colloquially, but I think it really does speak just more to a contradiction that you know, falls in line with the land question, you know, um, but, and a lot of other questions, like, to me, indigenous is the, like, the indigenous, you know, struggle is the unifying struggle because it includes the black struggle, includes the migrant worker struggle. Most people, when they think about migrant workers, do not consider the indigenous migrant workers, uh, which that's our main source of income. I'm one who does it many times, you know what I mean? Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of things that aren't considered because um, in the settler mind, indigenous people just don't exist. You might acknowledge we exist, right? But you are not considering us actively in your analysis because you do not understand us and do not know anything about us. It, it's, a, it's a degree of alienation that's incurred by uh, separating us on reservations, and that's the design. The crux of the so-called quote-unquote Indian problem in the Western Hemisphere hinges on this question. What do Indians want? For us, it's a larger social problem of underdevelopment. Colonialism has deprived indigenous people, and all people who are affected by it, of the means to develop according to our needs, principles, and values. It begins with the land. We have been made Indians, quote-unquote, only because we have the most precious commodity to the settler states, land. Vigilante, cop, and soldier often stand between us, our connections to the land, and justice. 
land back strikes fear in the heart of the settler. But as we show here, it's the soundest environmental policy for a planet teetering on the brink of total ecological collapse. The path forward is simple. It's decolonization or extinction. And that starts with land back. And so I'm going to actually go into a quote from um, Border Town Violence um, in America. Uh, which is, the border town is always under attack. The native must always be destroyed. This is the recipe for an always present settler fear and anxiety stoked by the terror of a coming great replacement fantasy. A white genocide in which native and black people are in a uh, constant rebellion always threatening to do to the settler what the settler did first. To the settler, the only settler, the only reasonable response to this violence is to destroy the native before the native destroys you. From Indian rolling and military occupation to silencing the voice of indigenous people within revolutionary organizations, these are all examples of a settler mentality of vigilantism. Vigilantes are people who do the work of the state um, out of some noble purpose that they feel. And so people feel the need to challenge the land back question because inherently you understand that this is not your home. This is not your land. And by displacing yourself from land, you remove yourself from power. Okay. And as a settler, this is very troubling, especially as a proletariat settler, because you don't have power to begin with. You know what I mean? But what I ask is, in a democratic centralist structure, um, how do you create equal representation? You know. How, how is there representation of minorities within a democratic central structure? I know because I've studied the Soviet Union and China's models. But I'm aware that many people are not aware of how that's done. You know, the assumption is, is we'll just make indigenous and black people the leaders. But the problem is, when are we made the leaders? When we are made the leaders is in a tokenization effort, usually led in some Yodin, you know, offshoot of, like some esoteric Marxist nonsense that, though in the right direction of, you know, decolonizing, so to say, goes off into cultish behaviors such as what we can see with Black Hammer. You know, a lot of their ideas, though, um, if you're in the cult, sounds good. Outside of the cult, you realize how much of it is just fueling a narcissist's um, lifestyle, I guess. <laughs> well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a we'll lifestyle. We'll call it but, that. Uh, yeah, we'll generously call it a lifestyle. It's more like abuse, which I guess is a lifestyle for an abuser. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, In 2019... That's... Uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, that's another... That's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> to date this... Turn into Yoda. To date this pod, to date this podcast episode, uh, the recently the most recent Twitter drama that I that I had to uh, endure was we were relitigating whether Anne Frank had white privilege, and I was like, I was oh, like, wait a minute, well, Black Hammer did that. That's shit. what I'm saying. That's exactly Hammer. what I was saying. Yeah, they were the ones that sparked. That, I was about that, yeah. to say. I was like, every time they do that, every time her birthday comes around, they do this bullshit, and mm-hmm. then they get trending. And this time, Sorry and this time, it seems like completely detached from that. I was like, people are like, this is this is coming up as a new thing. I'm like, bullshit. I've seen this play before. Run it back. Like, I know exactly what we're doing here. This time it just came from some other no-name, and people are having to be like, you remember when Ghazi was saying this? Wasn't that more fun? Let's go back to those times. 
Uh, yeah, Twitter is a hellscape. I, I, I cannot tolerate it. And before we continue, I, I think um, for the audience that we're talking to here, especially with Mark's Madness, Wretched of the Earth, you know, if you haven't listened to the season, incredible. Um, Fanon is a must-read. Um, successful revolutionary that instead of becoming a leader, just does what he wants. You know, he becomes a psychologist. That's incredible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but for a colonized people, the most essential value, uh, because uh, the most concrete, is the first and foremost, the land, which will bring them uh, food. He says bread. Um, but in this context, let's read food, because some of us didn't rely on bread until colonialism. Um, and uh, above all, dignity. Sorry. I mean, above is definitely not written well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all this resistance is the continuation of an age of indigenous organizing started, um, you know, in the 20s, um, as we, like, I would say organizing as we understand it here in America. It started here in the, it started for indigenous people in the 20s as we became forced to assimilate uh, with, like, uh, in 1923, we become citizens of the United States officially. Um, which you saw a lot of um, precluding from j the job market, you know. Um, but uh, we're only now hearing the struggle as Earth is crying for healing, um, and for na now, that healing is by fire, you know, because we didn't do our diligence as the caretakers of Earth. Yeah. In 2019, the mainstream environmental movement, largely dominated by middle and upper class liberals of the global north, adopted as its symbolic leader a teenage Swedish girl who crossed the Atlantic in a boat to the Americas. But we have our own heroes. Water protectors at Standing Rock ushered in a new era of militant land defense. They are the bellwethers of our generation. The year of the water protector, 2016, was also the hottest year on record and sparked a different kind of climate justice movement. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, herself a water protector, began her successful bid for Congress while in the prayer camps at Standing Rock. With Senator Ed Marquis, she proposed a Green New Deal in 2019. Standing Rock, however, was part of a constellation of indigenous-led uprisings across North America and the U.S.-occupied Pacific. Get ready for a rapid-fire string of Nathan pronouncing names wrong. Duda Desert Rock, Unisotin, Unisotin, Camp, I've you've already corrected me on that one, so just fuck it. It's dead to me. I, I can't. I'm I'm fucked. I'm fucked. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing, gang. Keystone XL. That sounds like a beer down the road for me, so I can get that one right. Uh, Idle no more. Trans Mountain. Enbridge Line Three. Protect Monokea. Save Oak Flat. Nihigal. Be Inna. Bayou Bridge. Odohim Anti Border Collective. Kumie, Defense Against the Wall, and 1492 Land Back Lane, among many more. That seemed like a, a trap specifically to make me feel bad about myself, gang, and I'm, I'm just going to take the L on that one. I, I had to read this section uh, in a presentation to Marxists. Oh, no, okay, you win. Like, collapsed. Yeah, that was awful. Uh, I was like, ah! And then, like, they had, like, citations. Oh, no. And I read the citation oh. number. I was like, fuck. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But in the 50s, you know, there was the Fissions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, you have Alcatraz, uh, the Pit River blockades uh, where they started charging tolls. And they also did um, the um, Ohlone people uh, led a resistance to um, 
um, uh, what's it called, oil rig infrastructure going up near the bay. And, um, you know, you have Mount Rushmore, Wounded Knee, uh, you, you Fort Lawton, the Winter Dam, uh, Chicago Ports being uh, occupied, Milwaukee Lighthouse being occupied, Fort Snelling being occupied, uh, you know, and even like Yellow Thunder Camp, as far as like American Indian movement occupations go. Um, these are all huge examples of um, indigenous resistance that is on the front line struggle saying the same thing for years. You are killing our water. You are killing our planet. We are going to be harmed by extractive industries recklessly um, taking what they want. Um, like Russell Means' argument and why he was a capitalist was that capitalism regulates itself. You just need to have a purely free market system. Duh. <laughs> yeah, and then we read a whole book about that, and it turns out there are yeah. some flaws in that logic. Uh, R.E. Bolts of Linen and Coats. Uh, it's it's all in there, if I remember correctly. Well, and so, yeah, like, uh, you know, he, he was an educated man. Um, I don't think he took the time to read Marxist literature. Instead, um, just discounted it as European ideology, not recognizing the dialectical relationship it shared with indigenous inspiration. You know. Each movement rises against colonial and corporate extractive projects. But what's often downplayed is the revolutionary potency of what indigenous resistance stands for. Caretaking and creating just relations between human and other not other than human worlds on a planet thoroughly devastated by capitalism. The image of water protector and the slogan water is life are catalysts of this generation's climate justice movement. Both are political positions grounded in decolonization, a project that isn't exclusively about the indigenous. Anyone who walked through the gates of prayer camps at Standing Rock, regardless of whether they were indigenous or not, became a water protector. Each carried the embers of that revolutionary potential back to their home communities. Water protectors were on the front line of, of distributing mutual aid to communities in need throughout the pandemic. Water protectors were in the streets of Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, Albuquerque, and many other cities in the summer of 2020 as police stations burned and the monuments to genocide collapsed. The state responds to water protectors those who care for and defend life with an endless barrage of batons, felonies, shackles, and chemical weapons. If they weren't before, our eyes are open now. The police and the military, driven by settler and imperialist rage, are holding back the climate justice movement. And so, like, I'd like to know, you know, um, the backlash of just Orange Shirt Day, you know, Indigenous People's Day, you know, uh, you, you have a vigilante justice going on where you have white people specifically targeting indigenous communities just from, you know, liberal ideas of representation politics, right? Um, for us, you know, this sentiment and thought that we talk about here, you know, the caretaking, creating just relationships with uh, human and other than human worlds, you know, really needs, it really draws from, or rather clarifies, I should say, the Zapatista position of a world that fits many worlds. It's the idea that in a just society, in a socialist society, you know, we would live in just relations with not just the land, but animals, air, water, and each other, you know. Uh, this is what I call the politics of caring. It's an essay I'm writing for Red Fightback in Scotland. Um, because they have a lot of people arguing that 
Scottish independence's land back, which is, you have to understand history <laughs> to know why that's not necessarily true. It'd be like me saying, ah, yes, let's, you know, like, I would say land back for the charity key begins in Oklahoma, and then we can move back to Virginia once we figure that out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, step one, step two situation yeah. here, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, uh, let's give the Irish land back first, and then we can maybe talk about Scotland after the Welsh and everybody else. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is like a... This is all informed um, as what like I describe as an indigenous theory and praxis of how to live in better relations. You know, the politics of caring is all about um, you know a scientific socialist approach to communalism that transcends species. You know, um, I, I fear you know you can get into the red vegan argument, but I think Max Agile. I think that's how his last name's pronounced. Um, makes an excellent argument in his piece, um, Red Vegans, uh, against red veganism, um, that, you know, a as somebody whose people calls themselves the buffalo people due to our reliance on the buffalo, you know, I'm not going to argue that you shouldn't eat meat. Uh, I hunt, you know, I don't hunt for sport, I hunt to sustain. You know, I fish to sustain myself. And as long as you're, you know, using all of that rather than just, you know, butchering it for sport, I think it carries a lot different weight than, you know, um, industrial farming and agriculture in any sense. You know, like, uh, I don't think clear-cutting forests to grow more soy so everybody can eat vegan is the solution. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this all stems from 500 years of praxis of indigenous resistance that is so often ignored for no other reasons than ignorance and fear, like we've talked about over yeah. and over. It, that, I mean, that does kind of lead to a little bit of a, a important, you know, discussion about permaculture, right? I mean, grow what should grow somewhere. You know, well, I mean, to us, that permaculture is just agriculture. That's yeah. just our agricultural practice. You could say we didn't farm, but we did. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a million fruit trees everywhere. You know. Oh yeah, and you know, I mean, it's things are intended to grow places, and and there's places that are plains, and and reforestation is not necessarily what's best for there, even if it's important on a larger scale, you know, and so we can't just go with, like, what we decide is green. We have to take care of, of the environments that exist, right? We have to grow within places, stuff that belongs, right? Like, me and Nathan are, are in Missouri. All kinds of people want to grow flowers in their gardens Well, y'all are stuff. in Missouri. Yeah. Oh, yeah. St. Louis, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so we're, we're in Missouri, so, you know, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't want to grow flowers and, and stuff, and just look at what's in the fields, Right, you want you want to grow flowers in your yards, grow cone flowers. Yeah, they grow like crazy. They bring the bees. You know, I mean, do okay, do what well, belongs somewhere. Two things here. Yeah, bees aren't indigenous to America. There's a lot better pollinators out there. Get fucked, bees. Secondly, the official marks madness stance. You suck. Get fucked, <laughs> get fucked, bees. I'm taking a hard line well, here. There, there's honey bees is what everybody usually thinks of when they think of bees. The thing is, is that. Most of our pollinators that are indigenous aren't honey makers. You know, basically, a settler wants a give and take relationship where even if they are going to live symbiotically with the earth, 
you need to have a take, you can't give, you know? And I think that's the fundamental difference is that as long as you're expecting to take, um, it's transactional. You know, if you're just doing what you need to do to survive and then trying to help out the environment along with that, I think that's a much better ideology and it certainly makes it a lot easier on your anxiety levels for feeling like a piece of shit for like getting a plastic bag at a gas station. (laughs) Like, you know, we shouldn't be killing ourselves with stress over little pieces of, you know, plastic that, well, you know, you're going to throw more garbage in anyway. You can reuse a plastic bag. You know what I mean? There's other things like, I don't think we should be using single use plastics for like beverages, but you know, whatever Here yeah we are. well and even single-use plastics themselves are a huge problem but also you scale right like we could get rid of all the single-use plastics ourselves it's not going to stop billionaires from having private jets you know i mean we've got we've got a systemic problem to solve number we one replace them with like uh you know like a hemp alternative or something that's biodegradable yeah. but then what does that do they're just going to charge us more for it, mm-hmm. and then it's going to create another billion-dollar industry that just is an alternative to what was the norm for so long because contradictions demand they address the reality. You know? Right, whereas a society with an economic process built for the benefit of society could turn those single-use plastic into hemp without it just being a cottage industry of overpriced products. Exactly. We need to have that society first, and that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't get. Yep. Like, uh, I had a friend argue... Oh, why don't you just do that stuff now? It's like <laughs> I will literally get arrested if I fix the sidewalk in front of my house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I'm a little conflicted. Uh, David, you want to take over and uh, and read for this last chunk? Yeah, yeah. So this next chunk is going to be called New Deals, and it starts the Green New Deal, which looks and sounds like eco socialism, offers a real chance at galvanizing popular support for both. While anti-capitalist in spirit and paying lip service to decolonization, it must go further. And so, too, must the movements that support it. That's why the Red Nation initiated the Red Deal in 2019, focusing on indigenous treaty rights, land restoration, sovereignty, self-determination, decolonization, and liberation. We don't envision it as a counter-program to the Green New Deal, but rather going beyond it. It is red because it prioritizes indigenous liberation and a revolutionary left position. As we show in the following pages, this platform isn't just for indigenous people. And so for us, it's really important to dispel a lot of like the myths that white people hold um, and like the confusion around what, you know, Indians and our tribal governments and how liberal, like liberal solutions, you know, play into that. Which, you know, often hurt people due to short-sightedness. Like, uh, patriotic socialism, um, you know, uh, their idea is that anybody incorporated into the American project, right? So, you know, Native Americans don't become Americans until 1923. It's pretty far after, uh, you know, 1776, you know... um, you know, and we're not even getting into the slave question here. You know, yeah. <laughs> not my place to talk on it. But patriotic socialists, you know, will even incorporate freedom fighters from slavery, you know, into the uh, mythology of you know the white 
working class here in America, you know, the settler working class here in America. And, you know, they'll say, like, Geronimo is a revolutionary figure uh, of America. And that's, that's not the case. Geronimo was not an American. If you do not understand that we are our own nations, it is because the current Indian Reorganization Act governments, the uh, tribal councils that were instituted during uh, the original New Deal, uh, the Indian New Deal is what they called it, um, those governments have been corrupt, despicable examples of uh, how white people have ultimately <laughs> corrupted the way we've done democracy with their own stupid interpretation of how Haudenosaunee people did democracy. Uh, literally, Thomas Jefferson steals from the Haudenosaunee way more than Karl Marx does, and you know, uh, both of them come to. Um, Conclusions that are definitely uh, lacking in the, their accuracy due to that indigenous question, you know, um, and uh, you know, there's just this, um, you know, this idea that it's only our issue, you know, and it, it's not. It's everybody's issue. The land is everyone's, and if you put us in charge, it's everyone. The only reason we want to be in charge, quote-unquote, is to reapply authority and jurisdiction to everyone so that we all play a part in taking care of our environment and what feeds us and protects us and gives us water and allows us to live on this planet that, as far as we know, is the only one we got. So, yep. Uh, the Green New Deal has the potential to connect every social justice struggle, free housing, free health care, free education, green jobs, to climate change. Likewise, the Red Deal places anti-capitalism and decolonization as central to each social justice struggle, as well as climate change. The necessity of such a program is grounded in both the history and future of this land, and it entails a radical transformation of all social relations between humans and the Earth. And so, like, uh, obviously, Nick's, Nick Estes' book, uh, Our History is the Future, is really what plays into that. So if you don't really understand that concept, uh, you can go there. Um, but for me, in my culture, uh, we call it Matakie Oyesin, which uh, Nick is also Lakota. So there's a lot of, um, you know, shared philosophy there that we've just learned through our own unique journeys. Um but Madhakie Oyasin basically means um, all my relations or all is related, all is interconnected. And so, you know, the circle of life from The Lion King, I'm sure we've all heard. Um, that's a really shitty way to explain it. <laughs> the, Disney, the Disney way. Wait, you're telling me Disney it, didn't yeah. do a good job explaining something? I find this hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, go look at Pocahontas. That is a documentary, <laughs> damn it. And I'll hear nothing against it. No. God. Nathan is trying to get himself killed. God, I can't imagine that so. movie. I, God, I can't imagine well, that. No, see, it's a tomahawk. <laughs> the, right the updated ice pick. The updated ice pick. Um, there you go. An ice pick, an ice pick for a new revolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just stop it. It's like, ah, you brought it here. 
You shouldn't have taught us. <laughs> they conveniently left that out of Pocahontas. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, you remember that uh, one song that was popular back in the day? It was like uh, you know, Disney songs that they were more like historically accurate or whatever. Oh, no. And it was like uh, like a... What what what's the term like a collage basically of like sounds. oh like a mashup so oh, like yeah. A, yeah and they had like a Pocahontas what well, like it was like uh, Aladdin first and so then they made like uh, oh, you know, points about like the Iraq oh, War oh god yeah you know like uh, yeah oh, oh bad god. bad right and it was progressive so it was like uh, you know like a political point was raised and it wasn't like. Uh, Problematic, I okay. don't think. I guess it could be. But, like, uh, my favorite part is, like, uh, Colors of the Wind. They're like, have you ever uh, heard the screams of Spanish men? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever painted with the entrails of an Englishman? <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> It's super good. Nice. I think, like, the guy's name was, like, Paint or something. That... Like that. Nice. This sounds this sounds reasonable. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to dig that up. Sometime. One more pair. Yeah, this is like you know, kid. Like when I was a kid, this was like a meme oh. that was popular. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how old y'all are. <laughs> <laughs> too too old is the question is the answer. Yes, yeah, that that's always the answer. All right, last paragraph, David, bring us home. Sure. We should be mindful that the pitfalls of New Deals, the deal in the U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal was, after all, between northern industrialists and southern racists to save capitalism from itself during the Great Depression. Fuck yeah. We just talked about this heavily during um, Blood in My yep, Eye. Yep. So, yeah. Well, and so, like, a lot of people aren't aware of the um, economic success that indigenous people had while, you know, white people suffered through, well, American society, I wouldn't say just white people, but, you know, like, uh, it was primarily white people. Anyway, uh, <laughs> through, like, the Dust Bowl and Great Depression and stuff, um, and so you know, when we're having our own little, like, economic golden age, um, because uh, the way uh, Russell Means describes it is, I'll say Russell Means a lot, even though he's problematic, but um, he does make some good points, is that you know, we had four, we had to rebuild our economy four times, you know. So we had our original economy that was destroyed, and then we rebuilt it, and then we had our war with, our second war with the Americans uh, after Red Cloud's war, which would be like, um, where we have like the Battle of Little Bighorn and stuff. And um, uh, So then uh, we have to rebuild our economy a second time, and then we have... Uh, you know, uh, the Dawes Act, which destroys our economy a third time. And then we have the Indian Reorganization Act under FDR, which destroys our economy a fourth time. And also you have like uh, prohibition and stuff, which um, sure is racially targeting people, but economically devastated the Oglala Lakota specifically, who were one of the largest exporters of hemp at that time. So, um, you know, like, yeah, the racial politics is an important part of the prohibition of marijuana, but it is a direct attack on the economic, the political economic alternative to the United States most apparently available um, at that time. 
And so then also, like, uh, you know, with the New Deal, it's also heralded as this, like, uh, FDR is called, like, a socialist a lot of times, and, like, people present him as, you know, a hero, especially patriotic socialists, you know, as a great example of how, you know, American society has um, virtues that should be maintained. Um, But the problem is, is a lot of these projects... We're like building dams and stuff, and I don't think people realize how damaging dams are. They, all they focus on is the hydroelectric power nowadays, um, but I don't think they realize that it destroys fish populations. If you destroy the fish populations, you destroy a natural fertilizer, you destroy a natural um, scum eaters, you destroy a lot of different things that keep the ecosystem in check. You know, and you know, people's arguments are, oh well. Beavers build dams. They change ecosystems. Right? But when a beaver builds a dam, it doesn't stop a fish from going over it. And if you don't know that, you really need to get the fuck outside. I'm just so, I'm so sorry for you. As somebody who lives, I've, I've seen beavers in hand. I've literally trapped, skinned, and cut up beavers. You know what I mean? Like... I know a lot more about these animals than a lot people, a lot of people do, and that is, I guess, a privilege of mine. But it's more that I've lived in the middle of fucking nowhere, and this is like the only source of a good paycheck. You know what I mean? So yeah. like, you you end up meeting a lot of people, and you end up meeting, you know, just a lot of interesting people. Like I I haul just bundles of wood and like huge logs across town all day and that's what i'm known for now (laughs) in this little tiny town you know and and people don't think it's that weird they don't they're like that's smart if you're actually going to freaking do you know if you're going to build a garden what i'm doing is i have about a half acre in the middle of my small little town that i'm building a huge garden on and my neighbors have their own gardens going so we're all trying to like uh you know, collect stuff and pitch into it one another to create basically like a permaculture f- uh, food force. Nice. Um, which is a super awesome idea. The problem is, is that you have so many people uh, fucking not willing to put in the work. So it's cool. I live so close to people that have the same ideas as me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I will say though that uh, Mark's Madness officially amending touch grass to touch rivers, touch rivers. is, is going to be a thing now. Touch, touch rivers, rivers, yeah. <laughs> but like pro- projects like the Winter Dam, or uh, we'll, we'll get into um, what's it called, Chamberlain and um, the Lower Brulee uh, people. But uh, projects like the Winter Dam, however, flooded traditional people's um, lands with, in order to provide jobs. For usually a white working class, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and on the uh, the the res the winter dam affected, um, there was only two survivors that you know could talk today. Uh, I don't; they might be dead now. Actually, I should probably look into that. Um, but I, I had the pleasure of meeting them and talking with them. Uh, and like, uh, there's this island on the lake uh, where their home used to be. Oh my god! Right. So, like, uh, they had these elders on this island, you know, and were honoring them and stuff like that. But when you think about it, they didn't just lose a home under that lake. They lost a childhood. They lost a literal place in time, you know, because it's underwater now. 
you know, their their childhood homes, their childhood playing grounds where they used to roam and have fun is underwater now in order to provide electricity and jobs to the white towns outside. Because this, this power maybe comes back to the reservation now. Maybe. And that's if all of the reservation there has access to, to that electricity. Grid. And that it's so common, like we covered in uh, the first part, to not have access to electricity. And I don't think people... I think so many people on the left take electricity as a granted here in America because white leftists are definitely a part of the imperial core and they don't understand fourth world politics because so many of our analysis begin well ends at the third world and even then that's a problematic term now right we say developing nations you know but what is a developing nation it's a nation that is you know in the midst of progressing its material conditions and if we understand that indigenous people hold their own nations that are occupied currently by settler colonial governments, um, we need a level of self-determination. And this has been settled in the UN courts. This is law. The problem is, is making people... Um, what's Enforce? the world? word? Um, well, yeah, enforcing those yeah. laws, right? Yeah. So it's... You know, we might, we might, there might be a UN resolution saying that Zionism is in fact apartheid, right, in uh, Israel. But that's not going to end Israel, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't end Israel. You know what I mean? So, it, you know, how do we address those contradictions in these settler colonial societies as Marxists? That's where we really need to engage because, uh, like Lenin said, we need to engage in every, you know, facet of political um, yeah. life. And the problem is, is that indigenous people are probably the only sector of the left engaging effectively with the federal, you know, government. PSL runs indigenous people as tokens and then fucks up their parole. No heat, but also, you know, a little bit of heat thrown, (laughs) a little bit of shade thrown. Um, You know, with the Leonard Peltier thing, like uh, they literally fucked up his parole. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, uh, if you care about the indigenous struggle, a figurehead like Peltier is a better tool for your revolution. Because, let's be honest, this is all a tokenization effort. The the reason why uh, leftist people should want to engage with indigenous politics is not only that, you know, it's the, like, the right thing to do, the moral thing to do, but that materially, we are the closest to power. Mm-hmm. We already have a land base. We already have political alternatives. And we already have a legal jurisdiction, not only in the U.S. Constitution, but on the world stage to have our own nations. If those nations are formed socialist, you can't stop it. There is literally resolutions in the U.N. that support this. So... Fucking get your heads out of your asses and organize in the correct places because I'm all for, you know, Roe v. Wade, you know, protest and stuff like that. But if it is not connected to the land back struggle, what progress will we make? We need a political alternative. And like I said, there is a confusion amongst leftists. The common thing is that we can just go to indigenous reservations who have their own jurisdictions, right? And, uh, we can we can 
have abortions there. We could put abortion clinics there. Um, but people don't, we don't have hospitals. We have clinics tops, tops. And you are lucky, lucky if they're modernly equipped. Lucky. You know what I mean? And anybody who's worked in a nursing home like I have, modernly equipped isn't even the standard for white nursing homes. So why why would IHS have that quality of care? You know, most of our abortions on Indian reservations are done uh, traditionally. You know, read the Bible. God damn, there's literally a recipe in the Bible. I mean... <laughs> the Bible, the anarchist cookbook for is, the abortion movement. Here it is, guys. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there is literally herbal remedies to this problem. It is an easy problem for leftists to solve. Okay, the problem is, is what is the um, upstream issue? You know, we can keep pulling people out of the water to prevent them from drowning, but what's happening upstream to cause everybody from to drown? You know what I mean? And the the issue is indigenous sovereignty. There is a lack of respect for women in the Lakota tribes. We uh, women held property that the women were the owners of the property. When the Fort Laramie Treaty is designed, it is designed in a specific place to remove the traditional caretakers of the property from the equation. So all of a sudden you have a bunch of men who've never had to care about this in their entire lives, basically, making decisions on behalf of the entire nation. Literally, we need three three quarters of men to agree on something to legally change it according to treaty rights. We can do that at any time. We could establish a communist government tomorrow. The issue is we need three quarters of indigenous men to agree. And I think we can all see the many problems with upholding treaty rights when the prerequisite of those treaty rights is based in patriarchal domination, right? So now we need to have a redress of how the word men is even being addressed in treaties, which is not something settlers are even equipped to begin to discuss. They're not even equipped to begin to discuss this conversation. You might have a feminist in there that can point out a couple things, but are we going to reckon, right, with the the dialectic and the contradictions of Lakota society that have been spurred from colonial um, infiltration and you know infiltration, so to say, but like uh, influence, you know, like uh, it, I, I call it the traditional uncle stereotype. It's the idea that you know your uncle's telling you about all these traditional things and how to be a good Lakota man, and then he sits there and yells at his wife to go get him a new cup of coffee. You know, that that's not cool. And the reason why we do things that way nowadays is specifically because white people taught us to do it that way. You know what I mean? That the church came in, started castrating, you know, uh, queer people like me. You know, if I lived back then, I would be castrated, you know, for being winked at, for being two-spirited. You know, uh, like, I, 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 I had somebody say that I, you know, I don't understand, like, gendered violence and stuff like that because, uh, you know, I present male. And it's like, no, I don't think you understand how my culture works. Or the violence faced in settler society for men like me, you know. I, I wouldn't call myself a man. I would say I'm both man and woman. I'm two-spirit, you know. I'd say that I carry both the spirit of a man and both the spirit of a woman, you know. At the same time, you know, uh, maybe, like, gender-fluid 
might be more accurate, but non-binary is good enough for me. You know, do I need to get into this conversation every single time with people to be a valid person? I don't think I should have to. But in settler society, you have to because there's this binary, you know, where you're either civilized or you're barbarian. You're either, you know, um, Puritan in a way or, like, correct, you know, in their eyes. Or you're this pagan um, savage who just fucks all the time because God... uh, God forbid we fuck, like, a dude or we have two wives or something like that, you know. Who cares? It's your life. It's your family unit. You make it how you want it. You know, that's been our philosophy forever, and it's only changed due to Catholic and, uh, you know, other church influences. So, like, um, there's this really horrible period in our history, right? But I think people really do need to ask when these things occur. Right, so like uh, with the Cherokee, they own slaves, you know, and I do think there's a correct um, criticism to be had of the Cherokee, right? Um, they won't let a lot of these free men, uh, which is a uh, slave owned by the Cherokee, is called after the uh, Trail of Tears, is called a free man because they were like, well, you know, we only took on slaves because uh, if we did, we thought we'd have good relations with the white people. And then turns out, no, 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 there is no having good relations with the white people. Yeah, you'll never, you'll never be the good ones. Well, exactly, and so like, um, you know, th- there is a good, you know, there's a good criticism to be had. There's a good criticism to be have of a lot of Lakota expansionism and stuff like that. But it's, um, you know, a lot of it's rooted in the colonial question, and which is, you know, white people are invading, literally, and pushing people westward. And so westward expansion is not only westward expansion. What it is is it's western complication. You know, it's western um, quagmiring. You know, like you're literally pinning tribes against tribes. Uh, the first ever borders declared uh, after the Fox and Sulak, um, the Anishinaabe, the Potawatomi, uh, a lot of the Three Fires people, um, and the uh, uh, Dakota people in Minnesota. Um, fight, you know, um, it's this huge war, and uh, even Thomas Jefferson, um, very few times he would ever name nations by names, uh, but when talking to Lewis and Clark and stuff, he says, um, we want to make a good impression on the Sioux, uh, they are very powerful, and they control a swath, huge swath of the land, you know, we might have bought it from France, but if we don't make friends with these people, we won't actually be able to access the land that we've spent money on, you know. And uh, as you're going through Chamberlain, South Dakota, which we're going to get to, I know I've gone on this huge uh, side, but uh, as we get to Chamberlain, Dakota, when you're driving through uh, Chamberlain, South Dakota, Chamberlain, Dakota, anyway, <laughs> Chamberlain, South Dakota, <laughs> as you're coming in, you see this um, this huge. Um, woman with a honor blanket on her, right? And this is like an MMIW statue, really beautiful, um, fairly well done, uh, but it's done by a white guy. And if you don't think there's somebody on the res that can weld, you're a racist asshole. You know what I mean? Like, there, so many other people could have made that exact same statue, 
on the re- from the res. You, you could have had any in- so many indigenous artists do that statue, uh, and but the point that it's built on is where Lewis and Clark looked over the Black Hills um, for the first time, and that's in Chamberlain. Like the it's like called the like the gateway to the Black Hills or whatever, and you see this gigantic lake. All right, and the lake, much like the Winter Dam, is put there um, during the New Deal. And it floods a bunch of traditional people's homes. At least in Chamberlain, they had like a two weeks notice. In the Winter Dam, there was no notice at all. Oh my god. Yeah, so we can continue at this point, but that's a lot of context that you need to consider as we're reading, and this is why I wanted to do this with y'all, is that I can provide a lot of that contextual relationship. And you know we live for context, so thank you. Thank you so much, Shigmai, too, for bringing that. Um, Dave, you want to finish that paragraph and we will get out of here? Uh, yeah, man, we were, we were roaring to finish this paragraph finally, huh? Um, so anyway, uh, the deal was between Northern industrialists and Southern racists to save capitalism from itself during the Great Depression. It was hardly a people's deal, though it benefited workers and provided necessary relief. For indigenous people came an Indian New Deal, as it was known, which itself had mixed results. It brought jobs to the reservations that never had them, improved infrastructure, or built where it was absent, and in one instance, partially restored buffalo herds had been annihilated by the military and hunters a generation ago. I think we do need one other paragraph for this. Yeah, go ahead. The Indian New Deal's hallmark legislation, the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, ended allotment and repealed a ban on dancing and spiritual practices. It also provided the means to create federally recognized tribal councils, which in some cases replaced customary governments. I I really don't want to read this this next word of it. The uh, Lakota. I can read it if <laughs> I can read it if it makes you feel more comfortable. I am worried about not making you feel uncomfortable by throwing these words no, out it's there. Fine. Okay, no, uh, okay. This is a Vindaloria quote. Okay, okay. Then the Sioux had climbed from absolute deprivation to mere poverty. Hunk Papa intellectual Vindaloria Jr. said, describing the changes for his people, and it was the best time the reservation ever had. And yeah, actually, like Black Elk, um, uh, he supports that argument. Uh, a lot of people do. Is that you know, at first when the you know reservation system comes up, it's not bad. It, uh, we have a lot of economic prosperity. We we're doing super fucking awesome, and it's like it, it is literally a policy of white people to well, the settler government to fucking destroy us every time we're doing good economically unless it's in relations to them. So the Navajo Nation is probably one of the more like richer nations in the country right now. They're also really big uh, landmass-wise as well as population-wise. Um, but the thing is, they literally build guns and weapons for Raytheon. Mm, yeah. Like, they have an exclusive contract there to reduce the taxation on those weapons. You know, that's literally cheapening the industrial complex. And uh, the Navajo Council, the IRA governments, uh, the Indian Reorganization Act governments, um, are the people doing that. They, uh, they're they literally crafting policies right now that's uh, for carbon uh, that's pro-industry and pro-oil. you know oil. So, like, w- when we're talking about land back, we don't mean land back to tribal governments. We mean land back to the people. Yeah. Right. Land back to indigenous 
people rather than a national bourgeoisie that um, is effectively addressed in Wretched of the Earth, which it, it, it is a absolute must read before reading this piece at the very least, you know, and we, we, this podcast provides an audiobook for it, you know what I mean? And it just, uh, it, it really is important to your analysis that you consider the colonial question because, um, so many people, they'll reference Stalin's national question. They won't ever mention the colonial question, you know, <laughs> But it's it's a one it's a two parter. You know yeah. I mean? <laughs> there was a PS on there, I believe. Uh, and so, oh yeah, like, well, and, and if you try to address a national question, there's a lot of people that'll get the idea of the national question and start talking about autonomy, and then never like actual fully flesh out the national question, the complication of it, or like you said, the colonial question, and all of a sudden it's any ethnic minority. Anywhere in the world that has has you know faced any sort of oppression, they must need their own nation, and it's like what 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 constitutes that? There are times where that's absolutely necessary and, and relieves oppression, and there's what times they need where that is their own that's, sovereign power. Yeah, that's like what they need. yeah, they if, don't need their own nation necessarily. A nation. Um, spe- I don't agree with Stalin and Lenin's definition of a nation necessarily because when we look at First Nations and stuff like that, we have a completely fundamentally mm-hmm. different understanding but you have a good basis to start with sure because you're asking me to tr- like tr- uh what uh transmit you know hundreds and hundreds of years of orally passed down tradition that i don't quite understand i'm really young you know yeah. like i i you know i'm just now learning more as a father you know and like a, as the leader of my so-called clan, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, and that's not really how we do things anyway. Uh, but like, you know, as like the person who's Lakota in my family unit that has the most knowledge, you know, it's my job to pass on those traditions and cultural knowledge to my son. And it's a lot different than like a Republican right winger going, our traditions are to shoot that deer and hold it up. Like, we fucking just did something amazing. Yeah. You know, anytime you take a life, it's not amazing. It's not something to celebrate, and you should never capture the moment on fo- photo. For a disclaimer here, since we brought up Vine Deloria Jr., I think it is important to bring up, especially since I, I didn't mention Palestine in this, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. was an incredible writer uh, with an uncanny ability to predict the future conditions of so-called Indian country here in America. Indian country is anywhere... Um, that is controlled by Indians that, you know, white people tend not to have the greatest jurisdiction over. Um, and so uh, it, it should be noted, though, that he was sort of like a tangential Zionist, um, and that's basically due to the influence of Christianity uh, on him, as well as uh, there's this famous writer, Hank Adams, that wrote the 20-point... Well, did a huge portion of the 20 points of the Trail of Broken Treaties. Um, And very influential, but a lot of the arguments based around that if you understand history through the Bible, you believe that Jewish people, whatever, I don't know, you know, but Jewish people have, homeland is Israel, right? And they have a claim to it, an historical claim, as much as Indian people do. That's basically the idea, which works in theory, Right, but once you actually start thinking about it, it's like, well, the Jewish people from the Bible, 
are the Palestinians now. Right. And you're just murdering them in this... Uh, um, you're incorporating somebody else's history into your mythology because of your religion, which is it's part of your history, so to say, but we need to recognize as materialists that mythology, that uh, religions have a lot of mythological basis to um, maintain certain structures and stuff like that. And like I was saying with, uh, you know, like the medicine men and like a priest class, so to say, you know, it m- might be different at first, but this is where those things progress without a class analysis influencing your society. You know, uh, exactly. that's just where they go. You know, you get that Nawadal, uh human sacrificing taxation shit, um, which is you know a mischaracterization. But whatever. <laughs> you know, th- there's just so much to talk about here. <laughs> there is a lot, and we will talk about more of it next week, but that will be it for us this week. A little bit of a longer episode for everybody this week, so enjoy. Bask in it. You know, really, really luxuriate in the additional sounds that you get this week. Uh, that being said, uh, this is the Mark's Madness Podcast, and there are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us. First of which is MarksMadnessPod at gmail.com. Next way would be on Twitter. We are at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Last but not least, if you go to the Discord link in our Twitter bio, you will uh, find our Discord server. And that is where Nathan spends most of his day today. Uh, David comes on command. Uh, Shugmati2 is in there as well, so you are more than welcome to reach out to him through our Discord as well. But I'm sure there are other ways that you can reach out to them uh, that are that are more effective than going through our Discord. Um that being said, David, uh, I think it is time for the annual disclaimer. The annual disclaimer? I only have to do it once a year? Nope, 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 <laughs> Hooray! Nope, nope. I've been free. Nathan right. forgot what words do. <laughs> Nathan forgot what words do. Uh, so anyway, um, obviously, as far as the Mark's Madness side of, of this collaboration, uh, we started this a long time ago uh, where Nathan came up to me and was like, hey, I want to read Capital. And theory, history, those are things that you want to read as a group, right? And the benefits of that are so that you know, you're getting different perspectives, you're getting different experiences, people are tying it back, people having discussions to better understand the real world experiences and the revolutionary work laid out ahead of them. Um, you're getting context, things like that. And there were fortunately only two of us for that, but we decided to record it. Maybe, you know, there's a little less input, but we can bring it to more people. And lo and behold, we recorded it. Turns out we had a podcast. And ever since then, what we've been hoping is hopefully you're out there, you're in your party, you're in your organization, and you're out there, you know, doing the work and whatever reading group or political education group in that organization is hopefully reading this along with us. Um, And then we can be another voice, another source of input, another source of context to help better enhance that discussion. Uh, Let's say that's not happening and your group is reading something a little shorter or more applicable to a project you're working on. Hopefully we can be that reading group and again, give you those reading group benefits. And let's say that's not happening and it's either something like this where we're reading it word for word. So it's more of an enhanced ebook or something we summarize more, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions Uh, because when we put these works into revolutionary action theory in revolutionary action is a phenomenon called praxis Uh, praxis of course by definition doesn't exist without theory and the theory is completely useless without praxis they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said uh money to do you have any uh plugs or anything like that that you would like to put out there this week uh, like I said, uh, Zakata's Ten Can on Patreon, you get access to like content for giving me money. 
Otherwise, on Cash App, it's just like dollar sign Zucato's tin can with like a capital Z, capital T, capital C. Um, uh, other than that, we also have the Breck Bay Water Belief, which is something I've been plugging forever now, and I'm really sad that we haven't been able to get them the relief they need. Um, but, you know, if you're going to shit on Indian Collective for taking Jeff Bezos' money, you need to start giving money to indigenous causes. I think there's a lot of great causes out there. I agree. There's a lot of great, you know, projects you can give your money to. The problem is, is they have support. Indigenous people tend not to, except from the church and stuff like that. So please, leftists, don't lose out support to indigenous people. Well, don't lose out the support to indigenous people to the church, is what I meant. Um, that being said, uh, Red Nation has, uh, what's it called? Uh, Patreon 2, uh, that goes to support efforts on Pine Ridge, um, media creation, uh, a lot of, like, feeding people down in New Mexico, um, housing people, um, you know, emergency relief for indigenous relatives and comrades, uh, there's a lot of stuff that the Red Patriot, what the Red Nation spends the Patriot money on, um, and it's all worth it, in my opinion, um, but overall, uh, you know, just support an indigenous cause, like, I, I know how it sounds, but, like, we don't, we don't get a support, we don't get support, just, you know, follow me on Twitter at, uh, Bands Island, and you can, uh, see a lot of mutual aid requests that I reshare. That's, like, my primary thing I do on there is just reshare mutual aid requests, and then, um, I don't know, like, what else should I, uh, read, uh, Red Nation Rising Border Town Violence in America while you're listening to this. Um, it's gonna add a lot of context. It's gonna help define a lot of words to you. Um, like the vigilante thing, um, it goes deeper into that um, concept. That's where I grabbed it from, obviously. Um, that's the only reason I'd be recommending it to you. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact that this theory is um, provable, it's it's applicable, and it's definitely uh, uh, the first representation of my life experience as an indigenous person through a Marxist lens I've ever seen. Um, the closest I've seen before this was Michael Harrington's Poverty in America, the, uh, Poverty in the United States, the other side of the America, or something like that. And that's like a, it's a shittier version of Bernie. I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> so, uh, besides, you know, as far as like indigenous, you know, analysis goes, a lot of it's done by white people that's popular. You know, uh, the good stuff like indigenous people's history of the United States might be read by leftist groups, but even that's asking a lot for some reason. And it's it's a really easy book to read. She is radical. Uh, people, she hides her power level, and I don't think people realize that. Um, because we're playing in a political field that has a lot more um, testing than most revolutionary organizations in America. I don't want to throw shade, but, you know... The Black Panther Party, though, major gains, major changes in America and, you know, major influence, um, 
American Indian movement was less radical and went on to the UN stage and stuff like that, yet still occupied entire towns, you know, forts from the government, you know, face the government in open fire in a field of battle, you know, <laughs> it, as cool as it would be to hear about that from the Black Panther Party, we didn't really hear that, but they supported the American Indian movement a ton. And I think that's, when, when you're looking at, you know, who do I want to live by the example of? The Black Panther Party is an exam- the best, in my opinion, because of their intersectional solidarity. That's why I look up to them. It's because they recognize that they didn't have a complete analysis and that they needed to rely on colonized people for um, further interpretation of the material conditions of the United States. That's about it. That's all my plugs. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for those. Um, again, things we've mentioned, uh, and especially Shigmani uh, uh, 2's uh, Patreon, uh, as well as their other other things will be linked in the description of this episode. So if you want to go down there, the links are going to be there. Uh, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod in collaboration with the Red Nation. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And I'm Shigmani 2. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. 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 Bye.